Richard, Sicily, 2000 by Michael and Jeffrey Derderian. Kind of, kind of sounds like you're saying Dirt Derder. And I bet they got picked on a lot for that name. Yeah. Now the building that housed the club had been many different clubs and owned by different people since the 1980s. The brothers decided to use the club to bring some live music to West Warwick, Rhode Island. The brothers were new to the music club scene. In the months prior to the fire, the building had been inspected twice by West Warwick Fire Marshal Dennis LaRoque. The club was cited for nine minor code violations during the first inspection in November 2002, but was not cited for the flammable polyurethane foam that the venue used for soundproofing, which, as everyone knows, is against code. The follow-up inspection in December of 2002 also did not cite the foam and the inspector gave the building an all-okay. So, LaRoque later told the Rhode Island State Police that he had not spotted the polyurethane foam during the inspection because he was upset after finding an illegal inward swinging door that he had previously asked to be removed from the building. Prior to the fire, the station often hosted concerts by 1980s hard rock groups and tribute bands. 
Local bands that had played at the station prior to the fire had used pyrotechnics during their concerts without incident, including a KISS tribute band that had set off fireballs during their show in August of 2002. Now, what I wanted to say before, the, the fireballs, I know a song they would have done that on. Uh, the song Firehouse. Yeah, because they, they like put up the fire, yeah, the actual band Kiss in the 70s when they performed the song, Paul Stanley would put a fire hat on, which looked weird. You got this guy with this big fro and clown makeup on his face with a red, red fire hat that like James would have wore as a kid. Singing Firehouse with, you know, fireballs going up around him. It's a good song, though. Now, after the boys took over the club, they clashed with the club's sour man, Dan Gavin. Gavin had an arrangement with the previous owner and believed that the brothers would honor the deal. Well, they didn't, and the sour man took his equipment and left. The brothers had stiffed him on $55, and they hired Paul Vanner to run their sound system. Now, also, the brothers had a penchant for stiffing the employees of the club. The club controlled 317 people, but the owner would inflate the numbers to get better bands. For the Great White Show, the numbers were inflated to 550 people. Neighbors often complained about the sound, going so far as to conduct a letter-writing campaign. The brothers met one of the neighbors, Barry Warner, offering to buy him an air conditioner to cover the sound of the club. Harry suggested that they use polyurethane foam to soundproof the club, since very conveniently he worked for a company that sold foam. Yeah, he worked for the company. He yeah. sold them the foam. Yeah. You think he got a little kickback commission on that? Oh yeah, he did. The brothers bought 25 blocks for $580. The problem with the film was it was not fire retardant. The brothers kept their day jobs. Jeff being a reporter for a Boston TV station, and but Jeff had just reported faulty mattresses that were filled with the same film he just used to soundproof his club. On February 20th, 20, 2003, Gray Wayne was scheduled to play at the station. Gray Wayne was formed in 1978 by Jack Wade and guitarist Mark Kendall. The band was originally called Dante Fox. Described as a, quote, backyard keg band, they gained a following in Southern California in the 1980s. The band peaked in 1989 with the album Twice Shy, with a video, once bidden Twice Shy, in heavy rotation on MTV, they began to sell out stadiums. But after 1990, their star began to fade, which is pretty darn quickly since it's only it one year. Well, I mean, the thing is, is, you know, one, by that time, MTV, see, back in the day, children, MTV used to play music videos instead of crappy reality shows. Yay. Well, you start looking by nine, by 1990, you had grunge coming into the scene. Yeah. So the music scene shifted. So that could also partially be... They're not completely their fault. No. I mean, you had Grunge come up, you had yeah. Nirvana and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. Yeah. By 2001, Jack Russell was the only original member left in the band. And by, but by 2003, as the sole thing eluded him, 
he contacted Mark and they agreed to go on tour. Calling themselves Jack Russell's Great White, they began a bar tour. At 11 p.m., Great White took the stage and opened with Desert Moon on February Still haven't looked up that yeah, song. Again. It was only, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I still, I still haven't looked it up. Yeah. Don't care to. Yeah. <clears throat> Brian Butler, where's the concert? The pyro was set and a flash, blinding flash is seen. As the camera comes back into focus, Brian saw some small flames on the wall of the drummer's alcove. During the performance, pyrotechnics set off by tour manager Daniel Beakley Ignite the flammable acoustic foam on both sides and the top center of the drummer's alcove at the back of the stage. The pyrotechnics were gerbs, cylindrical devices that produced a controlled spray of sparks. Bigley used four gerbs that were set to spray sparks 15 feet for 15 seconds. Two gerbs were at 45 degree angles with the middle two pointing straight up. The flanking gerbs became the principal cause of the fire. Sparks from the gerbs ignited the insulation foam, and the flames were visible on the wall above the stage within nine seconds of their ignition. Reminds me of that uh, that video I keep seeing, you know, the two people who play with fireworks. There's this little girl. With, there's a little girl with a sparkler. She's just sitting there, just lazily playing with it. People never learn. And then there's this little boy coming by going, "Someone gave me fire!" You ever seen that one? No, I wish I did though. Oh, it's hilarious. It was hilarious. I mean, these kids have a full sprint with a sparkler raised above his head screaming, Someone gave me fire. Someone gave me fire, oh my god! Now, um, the Flames originally got to be part of the act, which, in most cases, you know, rock band sparks are part of the act. Only as the fire reached the ceiling and smoke began to bank down did people realize it was uncontrolled. Twenty seconds after the pyrotechnics ended, the band stopped playing and lead singer Jack Russell calmly remarked into the microphone, Whoa, that's not good. Yeah, it was wow. It really was wow. Wow, that's not good. That's better. <laughs> well, he was probably drunk too, so. Yeah. Oh my god. Within 40 seconds of the ignition, Great White had stopped playing, well that was 40 seconds too long, and left the stage at the venue's fire alarm began to sound, but the fire alarm was not connected to the fire department. The station did not have a sprinkler system installed. Thick smoke began to fill the station, and one minute after the ignition, the crowd began to escape the building. The fire spread throughout the building and was completely engulfed within six minutes of the pyrotechnic ignition. Now by this time, the nightclub's fire alarm had activated, and although there were four possible exits, well, most people headed for the front door through which they had entered. The ensuing crowd crush in the narrow hallway led to that exit being blocked completely, as a result in numerous deaths and injuries among the patrons and staff. Kind of like the uh, Iroquois Theater fire back in Chicago. Now, the fire was reported to the Westworld Fire Department by cellular phone calls to 911 within 60 seconds of ignition. 
A Westward police officer who was already at the scene also reported the fire to the police dispatch. The first Westward fire engine arrived at the scene at 11.13 p.m., followed by three other trucks shortly thereafter. Hundreds of firefighters responded to the fire, including every available West Warwick firefighter and departments in Warwick, Coventry, and Cranston rendered mutual aid to the fire site. The Cowasset Inn restaurant across the street from the station acted as an ad hoc burn and triage command center for the first responders. A portion of the nightclub roof collapsed at 11.57 p.m. A second portion in the building's sunroom collapsed at 12.07 a.m. Patients were transferred or transported to Kent Hospital, which was filled to capacity, maximum capacity due to the fire. You know, even the homeless bar fight had to wait for room. You know there was a homeless bar fight that night. By 1.30 a.m. on February 21st, all participants had been transported and the street had been cleared. Of the 462 people in the building for the concert, 100 were killed, 230 were injured, and 132 escaped injured, uninjured. The initial death toll was 96 people, four more individuals died in the weeks following, and the 100th person died on May 4th, so bringing the final total to 100. Among those who died in the fire were Great White guitarist Ty Longley and the show's MC, WHJY DJ Mike the Dr. Gonzalez. Longley reportedly died after returning to the building to retrieve his guitar. No, don't go back in for the guitar. Don't go back yeah, in for anything. Yeah, because he obviously, he, he would be one of the uninjured. Unless it was like a really expensive guitar. Mm-hmm. Well, his girlfriend was pregnant at the time too, so. That's how he was making money. Yeah. Four employees of the station were killed in the fire. In April 2003, the Jordarians were fined $1.7 million for failing to carry workers' compensation insurance for their employees. The fine was not resolved until 2013, 10 years after the fire, when it was upheld by a judge. One survivor claimed that a bouncer blocked the side door by the stage as attendees attempted to escape the building, saying the door was only to be used by the band. And Carmen came and got him, hopefully, but I believe he survived though. Okay. Because he didn't he's not done to go back to first guitar. Well he blocked people from leaving. I'm trying to make a fun, funny oh, okay. okay. Providence Phoenix columnist Ian Donis wrote of the effect that the fire had on the close-knit Rhode Island community. The loss of so much life would represent a tragedy anywhere, but it struck especially hard in Rhode Island, the nation's smallest state, where no place is more than an hour away by car. You wait to the person on the other border. Hi. Hi. Many of the survivors of the fire developed post-traumatic stress disorder after the event. Y'all. The fire, from its inception, was caught on videotape by cameraman Brian Butler for WPRI-TV of Providence, and the beginning of that tape was released to national news stations. Butler was there for a planned piece on nightclub safety being reported by Jeffrey Derdarian, who was 
editor and of the night club and a news reporter. The report had been inspired by the E2 nightclub stampede in Chicago that had killed 21 people three days earlier. He had begun working for WPRI on that same day. WPRI TV and Jordanian were criticized for the conflict of interest in having a reporter do a report concerning his own property and he resigned from WPRI on June 30th. But he wasn't actually really doing the report on his own property. Well, no, I, I, it was just, it was a report on nightclub safety in general, which is why he had... Right, he had a in there so he could go, say, this is nightclub. Yeah, and like, I guess, you know, how to stay safe or... But we were told them not to, like, show, not to show any, um, like, names of the... Right, names of the owners. Yeah, so, no, not the names of the, name, the name of the nightclub. Oh. Like, any, uh, like, don't film any signs that say the station also would be as basically as generic nightclub as possible. I would have been like, first of all, don't tell anyone this is great white. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, it was mostly, too, we wanted to get the crowd instead of the band more. Right. So it was all that. And I remember when it first broke mm -hmm. and they were showing the video in Chicago, I was like, Great White's still performing? Mm -hmm. Who in the hell was desperate enough to hire Great White? You know, we know. Yes. See, when the bands, when 80s bands do these little bar mm -hmm. tours, I call them the alimony tours. Oh, uh, yeah. Because usually someone's got to pay alimony or child support or something, so mm -hmm. go out, make a few thousand, pay off the ex for a little bit. Yeah. A couple months later, I need my money. Who's going to? At the scene of the fire, Butler gave this account of the tragedy. It was that fast. As soon as the pyrotechnics stopped, the flame had started on the egg crate backing behind the stage, and I just went up the ceiling. And people stood and watched it, and some people backed off. When I turned around, some people were already trying to leave, and others were just sitting there going, Yeah, that's great. Those guys were stoned or drunk or both. And I remember that statement because I was like, This is not great. This is, this is time to leave. At first, there was no panic. Everyone just kind of turned. Most people still just stood there. In the other rooms, the smoke hadn't got to them. The flames wasn't that bad. They didn't like anything of it. Well, I guess once we all started to turn toward the door, and we got bottlenecked into the front door, people just kept pushing, and eventually everyone popped out of the door, including myself. That's when I turned back. I went around back, and there was no one coming out the back door anymore. I kicked out a side window to try to get people out of there. One guy did crawl out. I went back around to the front again, and that's when you saw people stacked on top of each other, trying to get out of the front door. And by then, the black smoke was pouring out over their heads. I noticed when the pyro stopped, the flames had kept going on both sides. And then on one side, I noticed it came over the top, and that's when I said, I have to leave. I'm sure it was a cleaned up version of what he actually said. And I turned around and said, Get out! Get out! Get to the door! Get to the door! And people just stood there. 
There was a table in the way at the door, and I pulled that out just to get it out of the way so people could get out easier. And I never expected it to take off as fast as it did. It just, it was so fast. It had to be two minutes tops before the whole place was black smoke. Smoke on the water. A National Institute of Standards and Technology investigation of the fire under the authority of the National Construction Safety Team Act using computer simulations with FDS and a mock-up of the stage area and dance floor concluded that a fire sprinkler system would have contained the fire long enough to give everyone time to exit safely. The station, which was built in 1946, actually was not exempt from a sprinkler requirement in the state fire code through grandfather clause because of change of usage. Like, since it used to be a restaurant and then became a nightclub, I think even it would and it did have like another some like other change of usages. So it wasn't even technically the Jordarians that would have been in charge right. of being, you know, the ones that need to put the sprinklers in. It was like some, like the previous owners. So that's another fault on the fire marshal. Because, but if it's a restaurant and it was built before 1976, mm -hmm. it would have had to have a sprinkler system. The NIST report was released on March 3rd, 2005 and was made available in two parts on June 30th, 2005. An investigation of the fire by Rhode Island State Grand Jury was started by then Rhode Island General, or sorry, Rhode Island Attorney General Patrick Lynch on February 26, 2003. On December 9, 2003, the Grand Jury announced indictments against station owners Jeffrey and Michael Dardarian and Great White Road Manager Daniel Beakley. The three were each charged with 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter with criminal negligence and 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter in violation of a misdemeanor. The work was not charged by the grand jury, as Lynch has cited a state law, of course, that prevented charges against fire marshals without proof of bad faith. The grand jury also did not char return charges against Russell. Lynch told the TV show 48 Hours, then his investigation found that the fire spread quickly due to the foam the Dredarians had installed in the station's walls and ceilings as a response to noise complaints. The lack of usable exits was also a factor, as was the inner door that Lerouk had found and asked to be removed. Jeffrey Dredarian said the door was also installed due to noise and they had removed it as asked. But sometimes reinstalled it if the venue was going to be loud at night, and it was, and it was used by the band to escape the building during the fire. Michael Dredarian told 48 Hours that it was quote indisputable that the building's use of flammable packing foam instead of flame retardant sound foam was the cause of the fire spread. But the brothers claimed that they had ordered sound foam and had received the, pa the packing foam instead. The foam was sold by, to the Dedarians by American Foam. 
2005, the Rhode Island Attorney General's Office received a fax from Barry Warner, a former employee of the American Phone, who lived in nearby nearby the station, who claimed the company had known about the dangers of polyurethane foam, but did not warn their employees about it. Although Warner was called to testify to a grand jury, he was not asked about the facts. American Phone refuted the claims in Warner's facts. In 2008, American Phone agreed to pay, or to pay, 6.3 million to the families of the victims to the fire. Victims' families have also cited overcrowding in the venue as a cause for the casualties during the fire. LaRoque had set various capacities for the station in the years prior to the fire based on whether pool tables and other items could be moved. The capacity was either set at 258 or 404, depending on how the building was being used. The, the final tally by the Providence Journal of people inside the station during the fire totaled at 462. The first criminal trial against Great White's tour manager, Daniel Michael Beakley, who was 26 from Orlando, Florida. This trial was scheduled to start May 1st, 2006, but Beakley, against his lawyer's advice, pleaded guilty to 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter on February 7, 2006, in what he said was an effort to bring peace. I want this to be over with. On May 10, 2006, State Prosecutor Randall White asked that Beakley be sentenced to 10 years in prison, which is the maximum allowed under the plea bargain, citing the massive loss of life in the fire and the need to send a message. Speaking to the public for the first time since the fire, Beakley stated, For three years I've wanted to be able to speak to the people that were affected by this tragedy. But I know that there is nothing that I can say or do that will undo what happened that night. Since the fire, I have wanted to tell the victims and their families how truly sorry I am for what happened that night and the part that I had in it. I never wanted anyone to be hurt in any way. I never imagined that anyone ever would be. Well, they were hurt listening to Great White, so it would have happened. I know how this tragedy has devastated me, and I can only begin to understand what the people who lost loved ones have endured. I don't know that I'll ever forgive myself for what happened that night, so I can't expect anyone else to. I can only pray that they understand that I would do anything to undo what happened that night and give them back their loved ones. I am so sorry for what I have done, and I don't want to cause anyone any more pain. I will never forget that night, and I will never forget the people that are hurt by it. I am so sorry. Superior Court Judge Francis J. Darrigan, Jr. sentenced Beakley to 15 years in prison, with four to serve and 11 years suspended, plus three years probation for his role in the fire. Darrigan worked the great sentence that can be imposed on you has been imposed on you by yourself. Beakley was released in March 2008. The sentence drew mixed reactions in the courtroom. Many of the families believed that the punishment was just. Others had hoped for a more severe sentence. On September 4, 2007, some families of the fire's victims expressed their support for Beakley's parole. Roland Holsington, whose 28-year-old daughter, Abby, was killed in the fire, told reporters, quote, I think they should not even bother with a hearing, just let Beakley out. I just don't find him as guilty of anything. 
The State Parole Board received approximately 20 letters, the majority of which expressed their sympathy and support for Beakley, some going as far as to describe him as a scapegoat with limited responsibility. Parole Board Chairwoman Lisa Holly told journalists of her surprise at the forgiving attitude of the families, saying, I think the most overwhelming part of it for me was the depth of forgiveness of many of these families that have sustained such a loss. Dave Kane and Joanne O'Neill, parents of the youngest victim, Nicholas O'Neill, released their letter to the board to reporters. In the period following this tragedy, it was Mr. Beakley alone who stood up and admitted responsibility for his part in this horrible event. He apologized to the families of the victims and made no attempt to mitigate his guilt, the letter said. Others point out that Beakley had sent handwritten letters to the families of each of the 100 victims and that he had a work release position in a local charity. On September 19, 2007, the Rhode Island Parole Board announced that Beakley would be released in March of 2008. He was released from prison on March 19, 2008. Beakley's parole and probation expired in March of 2011. As of 2013, he lived in Florida with his wife and two children. Following Beakley's trial, the station owners, Michael and Jeffrey Derdarian, were scheduled to receive separate trials. However, on September 21, 2006, Judge Derrickin announced that the brothers had changed their pleas from not guilty to no contest, thereby avoiding a trial. Michael Bedorian received 15 years in prison with four to serve and 11 years suspended, plus three years probation, the same sentence as Beakley. Jeffrey Bedorian received 500 hours of community service, which he probably served at a McDonald's. In a letter to the victim's families, Judge Derrickin wrote that he accepted the deal because he wanted to avoid public exposition of the tragic, explicit, and horrific events experienced by the victims of the fire, both living and dead. He added that the difference in the brothers' sentences reflected their respective involvement with the purchase and installation of the flammable foam. Rhode Island Attorney Pat General Patrick C. Lynch objected strenuously to the plea bargain saying that both brothers should have received jail time and Michael Tadarian should have received more time than Beakley. In January 2008, the parole board decided to grant Michael Tadarian an early release. He was scheduled to be released from prison on September 2009, but was granted his release in June for good behavior. And that is the station fire. Thank you. Hmm? Yes. <laughs> Yes, it is. Man, I'm as short as YouTube. Mm -hmm. And just a personal slight apology because allergies kick in my butt, so right. it sounds no, awful. Yes. <laughs> so, sorry, sorry, folks. We're going to wrap this one up. As you can hear, she's kind of stuffed up. Just, yeah, like a lot. So, so my dad. You know where to find us, folks? Um, rate and review the show. And as always, I'm your host for Killers, Clubs, and Nutjobs. I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Don't forget good to night, Monica. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And hit that <laughs> notification bell. Right. He watches too much YouTube. <laughs>